We'll uh, look this morning at some reasons why we can be thankful because Jesus overcame, like we just sang about, we also can overcome, and he tells us what the kryptonite of faith is this morning. But before we get there, I want to tell you a story that I heard about a recent seminary graduate that just got out of school, had his first church, and it was Christmas time. So he was telling the Christmas story and talking about the baby Jesus being born and being a seminary graduate. He wanted to really impress the kids with the reality that Jesus Christ is God. So he's thinking on his feet and he says, well, I better include the resurrection because that proves that Jesus was the God he claimed to be. So he briefly told the Easter story along with the Christmas story and talks about the resurrection. After he was done, he asked the kids, he says, uh, can somebody tell me what the resurrection is, what it proves? Like normal, there was no response real quick. And so he, he waited a little while, and the silence got a little awkward, and finally one little boy raised his hand. He says, well, I know that if you have a resurrection lasting longer than four hours, you need to call the doctor immediately. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I guess he thought he got this, his uh, message across. The, My sermon won't compare with that. <laughs> this morning, would you allow me to read Matthew chapter 13, the first few verses about the power, parable of the sower. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large, cra- large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the parable is a very meaningful instruction for each of us today. But on this next slide, we're going to see that the perspective that this parable is spoken in makes a world of difference to the impact that it should have. And so what I wanted to do, the first good rule of interpretation is context, context, context. So I want to briefly walk through the first 13 chapters or 12 chapters of Matthew. I'm probably going to jog. We're not going to walk. But the, the point is that the context will support this message summary that was up there previously, that growing faith is not distracted by persecution or prosperity. And Jesus Christ will be a case in point of the persecution aspect, and he gives us some directions about the prosperity aspect of distraction from our faith. Now, the, the big uh, thing that I learned personally as I was preparing for this message, they say that you shouldn't preach something that hasn't at first affected your own life. Well, this really has affected my life, and it was very encouraging to me personally, particularly when we get to the very last slide, which will be a reference to Hebrews 12. But the whole process demonstrated the reality of Christ's uh, 
concern for me personally and my family and for each of us as we live our lives and endure persecution or are tempted by prosperity. But the second thing that really impressed me with this is how our culture has distorted the reality of the truths of who Jesus Christ was and how he presented his truth. In our our small group, we talked a little bit about that uh, presentation of truth, and truth is truth regardless of how it's presented. I can tell somebody that they need to trust Christ as their Savior and uh, have an eternal relationship with God, or I can tell them, you know, you really need to trust Christ as your Savior and have a relationship with God, or I can tell them, you idiot, you got to trust Christ, you can't do it yourself. One way is a lot less offensive than another way, but it's still truth nonetheless. So the the context, the previous 12 chapters of this parable make a big difference, I think, in the way we look at the parable. The first four chapters of Matthew demonstrate that it's really written primarily to the Jewish community. The genealogy starts from Abraham and brings it up to Jesus Christ. Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish faith. It was a very religious community that he was addressing. In fact, it's exclusively to the Jews until you get to the Great Commission. But we live in a very religious community as well. So there's a lot of parallels that I think that we can draw. But the genealogy describes the link to the Abraham or the Jewish faith. Then we have the Christmas story, the baptism. And then what I call the invitation is something that I want to look at because you can turn with me if you like or you can just sit back and cruise. Uh, I really am representing the text accurately. It's up on the screen. But in 3, 7 to 10, John the Baptist presents a rather unexpected invitation to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. In 3, 7, he says, you brood of vipers. Now, these guys are coming to see what's going on when he's doing the baptizing in the Jordan, and he calls them a brood of vipers. It's kind of an unexpected greeting, and it sets the stage for what Jesus Christ is going to continue to say through there. When you get to 4, 17... The temptation has just occurred, and Jesus Christ is beginning his series of messages, and it says there, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he's talking to the religious people of the day, and inherently, when he says repent, he means they're wrong, (laughs) that they need to turn from what they are considering truth to what he is now proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. That is an offensive statement for those folks. Then if you look at 5.20, he's going into the Beatitudes. This is the end of the Beatitudes, actually. And he tells the people that are listening to him. Now, this is at the end of the Beatitudes where he has told them already that the meek shall inherit the earth and be a peacemaker. And he says in 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying these religious leaders are out to lunch. That's up in your face, you're wrong, I'm right kind of a statement. The next slide will take us to six, chapter 6, where he will address that concern about the distraction of prosperity. In uh, chapter uh, 6, verses 25 through 34, I'm not going to read all of that, but I've highlighted what I want to emphasize up here. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, nor for uh, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes, and so on. 
he's addressing a population that is basically poverty-level living. There probably were some rich people in that crowd that came out to him when he was on the mountain teaching these Beatitudes. But the majority of them were poor. And he's saying, don't worry about your next meal. Don't worry about your clothing. Don't worry about the things that we work so hard to achieve because Jesus Christ, God the Father, knows what we need. And he'll provide for them. So don't let the daily living necessities distract you from that faith that I am directing you to have and to live by, the righteous will live by faith. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now, this is going to be very meaningful when he stands on truth, and he will ultimately be killed for his stand. But he's telling these people, follow me, follow my example, be my disciple, stand for truth, and it may cost you your livelihood. Because in the Jewish religion, if you did accept Christ a few years later after his resurrection, and his uh, disciples take off, if, take off, if the Jews became Christians, oftentimes their family rejected them, they lost their business connections, they were outcasts. So this becomes significant, and don't allow that pursuit of necessities, life's necessities, to distract you from your faith. He, he's, he tells them not to worry, and then he goes on to, to talk a lot more about how to live, and he comes into chapter 9, verse 3, and I particularly like this, this uh, chapter, this, uh, this story. In Matthew, it's very condensed. In Mark, it's expanded. This is where they four guys bring the paralytic, paralytic on, a mat, on a mat, on a stretcher, and they can't get to Jesus, so they dig a hole in the roof and lower him down. That's this, this is the story that's in 9. And Jesus heals the paralytic. But before he did that, he said, your sins are forgiven to this man that's crippled in front of him, who has just made a grand entrance through the roof. And the religious leaders sitting there said, this guy is blaspheming. So what I'm trying to portray here is a building confrontation with the established religion of the day. And they say he's blaspheming. And then Jesus Christ, of course, in the story says, is it easier to say a man's sins are forgiven or to heal him? So he said, okay, stand up, take your mat, and go home. To prove that he was able to forgive the man's sins. And that really riled the religious leaders up. They didn't like that. And then in chapter 10, after he's done this, now, now remember, Matthew is recording these incidents in his life to communicate a message. And we're going to get to that message in 13, which is one of the five major divisions of Matthew. It's the middle one. And he's building these, putting these stepping stones in place so that when we get to 13, it will have a significant impact on our uh, faith on our lifestyle. But in chapter 10, Matthew records Jesus Christ sending out the 12 disciples. And it's very interesting. Again, like I said, Matthew is addressed to the Jews. He says in verse uh, 5, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. He goes on to send them out and commission them, telling them to heal and, and, uh, and preach. Because if nobody wants to listen to you, shake the dust off your feet, because it's going to be better for them in Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. I mean, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them, which, by the way, also argues that there's gradations of punishment in hell. But Jesus Christ is telling them, go exclusively to the people that are the religious people. 
the people who were supposed to be following Elohim, the God of the Old Testament. They thought they were, but they were not. The next slide continues in 10 with 24 to 25, where he, does, he makes another very countercultural statement. This statement that Christ makes is not politically correct in our day and age, and most people don't talk about this kind of a statement any more than they talk about politics. But if you look at 24 and 25 and 10, he says, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher. Then he drops down here to 34, and he says, I did not come, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus Christ is not the warm uh, doughboy that just lays down and plays doormat. He, he's telling the people, I didn't come to bring peace. It's not love your neighbor at all costs. Jesus Christ is love, but biblical love is not the oozy, goozy, you're okay, I'm okay stuff that is our political concept of that or our social concept of that. He's telling us that he's going to bring division. People are going to be divided over truth. He explains that in the intimacy of the household. But he's saying that a student isn't above his teacher. If they called me Beelzebub, they're going to do the same thing to you. Chapter 12, 13 is also one of my ones I like, because in this passage, uh, he's confronted by the Pharisees in the synagogue, and he, they ask him, is it, is it uh, okay to go against their rules and regulations to heal on the Sabbath? And he, of course, says it is, and knowing their hearts, he tells the man with the crippled hand to stretch out his arm, and it was healed completely. And uh, in 1234, he says, stretch out your hand, so he stretched it out. And it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Again, this is that building confrontation of the standard traditional religious system of the day against the truth of the Son of God. And this 12 is somewhat of a dividing line and a, definitely the beginning of the next division of the, the book in chapter 13. But in chapter 12 on the next slide, the, uh, he is healing again. And in 12, 22, and 24, they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished. But the, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. He's accused now of being a disciple or a follower of Satan. That's kind of a, a heavy-hitting statement here in Matthew. Matthew records it right here because the next thing that Jesus Christ says to the Pharisees in chapter 12, verses 38 and 39, is some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. They've just accused him of being a, a demon, of being demon-possessed anyway, working by the power of Satan. And they say, we want to see a miraculous sign. And his response is a straight right in the face. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. He's telling them they're wicked and adulterous. And he is love. <laughs> see, that's where I find the culture has distorted our perception of Christianity. You don't stand up for truth. You don't be offensive to someone. 
You don't tell them they're wrong. We've just got to work on our common ground. You're okay, I'm okay. Nobody is right, nobody is wrong. Jesus Christ didn't act like that. But at this state where he says an adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, that sets us up for this passage that we read earlier, the parable in Matthew 13. And I want to jump into that parable. The next slide, next slide will talk about the soil and the solicitation. But before we go any further, I would like to talk to the author in a word of prayer. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we do thank you that you are our God and that you are patient and long-suffering. You are love. You wait patiently for us and have demonstrated your love to, by sending your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just ask that you might give us wisdom and give us courage. Allow us to stand for truth and not be tempted to avoid that truth by virtue of the persecution that we will endure. Also, Father, keep us from being worried about the necessities of life. Guide us, give us strength and character, and allow us to honor you with the lives you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. The soil we read, the solicitation is significant in verse 9. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. He's going to go down, and what I have on the next slide now is the problem. He's going to suggest that the way to avoid the problem is to actually hear, to listen, to obey, to do something with the truths that we have. Don't be like the rocky pathway or the, the hard pathway, the rocky ground or the thorny ground. Be a, a, a productive Christian. But the problem is in, in uh, thirteen ten to 17. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Here is the Son of God telling truth to people who came to him to, to hear what he had to say. And he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. The problem is lack of uh, teachability, lack of response, lack of interest. That's what the parable is going to explain in, the, in, the, in his explanation of it. But there's a serious segregation. There's the haves and the have-nots. There's the people that have the truth and the people that <clears throat> do not have the truth. That's a big deal, real big deal. Do you know people that when you share truth with them, it's just like water off a duck's back? Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they just blow it off? It's like you didn't say anything. When we were down in Coldwater, I had a, a body shop and right at the C-plus at the convenience store, just like, like here at Luke's. And my, my shop was right at the edge of their lot. And a lot of people would come in and just chat. There was an old guy that came in there, 
he was a nice guy. Uh, talked to him frequently and shared the gospel with him frequently. And when I would share the gospel with him, you could almost see his eyes glaze over. And it would just be totally unreceived. When I would finish, he would pick up the conversation where I left off before I did the gospel without any recognition, any response to the gospel message at all. His, truly, his heart was truly hardened. I don't really know what happened to him. He, I know he died, but I, don't, uh, I didn't, you know, didn't follow through with him. But uh, the simple solution is to be teachable. That's what he says here in, in the next couple verses. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Be teachable. That's the key to the disciples having and the crowds having not. So again, let me ask you, are you a have or a have not? Are you responsive to the word? When we get to the parable, I'm going to explain that a little bit more. But when we hear the word, we need to do something with it, not just ignore it. And that brings us to the performance, Matthew 13, 18 to 23, which would be the next slide. And there's four paths or four responses specified. I've called the first one the path to hell, which is where the seed is sown on the path. Let's, let's read that part. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But, that's a big but, the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He gives us some specifics here that I think are reflections of what he has just said in the first 12 chapters. The pathway to hell are the people that hear the word but don't understand it. Now, it's not like the people didn't understand the words and the syntax. It was in a Greek language that they all understood. They were vocabulary words that they knew the meanings of. It was a case of knowable linguistics, if I could use that. It's like that 1 Corinthians 2 passage where it says, that says that the Spirit of God comes so that we can understand the Word of God. It's not something to do with intellectual perception. It's addressing the reality of relevance. The Word of God is meaningless to many, many people in the world. So what about the Bible? You just ignore it. It's a man's book. All kinds of excuses that are unfounded, by the way, about why this is not to be considered the word of God. That understand is the relevance of the word. It's the, 
fact that it's from God and I need to do something with it. It's meaningful to me because it's in this book we call the Bible and we know that it's inspired and it's authoritative and it's inerrant because God uh, provided it for me. That's the path of hell. People just don't, don't give a rip. <laughs> I don't care what the Bible says and they've got lots of excuses of why the Bible's a man's book and they don't have to worry about it. That's the first one. The second one I call rocking out. It's reflected in those 13 cha- or 12 chapters we just looked at where Jesus Christ is in the face of these religious traditionists telling them, you're wrong. You're wrong. So when persecution comes his way and they leave and plot how to kill him, he doesn't change his story. <laughs> He's still healing and feeding them and, and uh, providing for their physical needs. They didn't kill him for that. They killed him because he said they were wrong. And he didn't change that. Do we change when persecution is on the horizon? Do we not want to offend our family members, maybe, or our friends at work or something? Because the gospel's an offense. You know, get right, do it God's way. Means inherently that they're wrong and they're not doing it God's way. (laughs) That's offensive. It's not politically correct. It's not politically correct. But the people that are dissuaded from truth because of the persecution or the potential persecution, they're the ones that are rocking out of the program. The second one is the worry warts. This is the kryptonite of worry. I think rocking out, being worried about persecution is part of the worry or the kryptonite, but this one is specified, that the people are worried about their lifestyle. They're worried about making the payment for their new Lexus. Pardon me. They're worried about life's necessities. And because they're not willing to risk those necessities, they don't walk the walk that Christ calls us to. Remember Romans chapter 1, it says that the people were called to the obedience of faith. Legalism is wrong, absolutely wrong. But the fact is that we do have some directions from God in how to live our lives. The worry about making a living is what he addressed back when he said, don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough worries in itself. Tomorrow will have enough worries of its own. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. This is that same reference. Don't worry about it. Because God knows that we need it, and he'll provide for us. And God has been faithfully providing for my family for 30 years now that I've been, been saved. 34 years. Then there's that contrast, and that's a big, big but, verse 23. But, but, there's some fine farming available. Because if you receive the word and respond to it, and we all stumble and fall, and it doesn't mean we've got to expect perfection, but when you understand that God is trying to get our attention, and he wants us to live to glorify him, to be holy for he is holy, when we take the word of God seriously, Try to apply it to our lives. Seek understanding. We'll bear fruit. We'll be fine farming. We'll do what God will bless us for, for all of eternity. Because right now, the choices we make have temporary effects for sure. But the choices we make to follow God will have eternal benefit. It's a long time. Eternity is a long time. So what I, what I think we need to do is not just hear the word, 
but we need to respond to the word. And the next slide is what I call my takeouts. Are you a have or a have not? I've asked you that a couple of times. I've asked myself that. This is something that I've been blessed with as I prepared for this. How does trouble affect you? Have you experienced persecution for the word? It says that specifically in the text, if you're persecuted for the word. And how has it affected you? Are you intimidated by the people you live with, work with? No, socially? So you don't want to say anything? You take to heart that statement, don't talk about religion or politics? That's why they don't want to ruffle the, ruffle the waters. You don't want to ruffle feathers. What has kryptonite or prosperity done to you? Is money more important than faith? Making money more important than putting in the offering plate? Maybe your faith is a real bin buster. Maybe you're yielding. Maybe you're growing. Maybe you're hungry for the word. I hope that's the way it is. Because we should not allow persecution or prosperity to distract us from our faith. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago, Trey had a little skit in the, on a video that said that the uh, psychologist just said, just do it, or just don't do it. This isn't just a case where God is telling us to live by faith. He's told us how. And the next slide is something that has been very helpful for me. It's a, a lot of printing, but I didn't want to leave any of that out. I did cut quite a bit of it out, actually. Therefore, this is how you do that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I want to be trained by the life situations that God has plugged me into. And I hope you do as well. And I hope that each of us, I pray that each of us, are not distracted by either persecution or prosperity. Because those are the two things that God cites as major distractions to being a uh, faithful follower and having a bin buster of a faith life. Uh, would you pray with me, please? Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word and shown us that you love us and proven that you're powerful enough to do what you say. And so, Lord, we pray that each one of us might be strongly convicted to live our lives for you, not to be intimidated by persecution, not to be distracted by prosperity, but rather to focus on you and live our lives to honor you. Allow us to be trained by the, the hardships that we endure. And Lord, I pray that your name might be glorified in each of our lives. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.